I've got some numbers for you to ponder for a moment. Here they are. One, two, three, four, five, zero, zero, four, zero. That's 123 million, 450,000, and 40. What do you think they refer to? I'll let you think about that for a moment as I welcome you to episode 27 of Navigating the Energies of Life, a podcast that looks at how the energies of the Maya calendar are at work in the world and how they apply to daily lives. This is Marguerite Paquin, working at this time with the Ben, or Reed, Tresina, one of the 20 13-day periods that work together to form the Maya 260-day count of days that is the core of their calendrical system. As always, each of the days in this count is unique in terms of its characteristic energies and each of the Tresinas has its own unique theme. The one we're working with right now, the Ben Tresina, is all about personal authority and self-determination. It clicked in yesterday, March 22nd, with an energy that represents the initiation of self-determination. That was one Ben, or sometimes known as one Reed, and as noted in the blog, that marks the beginning of the second 52-day period within the 260-day count, known to some as the Zulkan. Generally, this energy is represented by robust growing corn, symbolic of strong, self-determined energy, pushing through and sort of lifting itself up, reaching towards the sky. Life expanding upwards, so to speak. Many pillar-like symbols tie in with this idea, and it seems that even volcanoes like to tune in, as we're seeing right now. Going back four cycles to 2018, it was Mount Kilauea in Hawaii that burst into action early on a one-bin morning, with an explosive eruption that shot a plume of ash more than nine kilometers into the sky just after 4 a.m. local time that day. This time, a volcano that's been dormant for some 800 years suddenly sprang to life at the end of the last Tresina, that was the Ahau, or Sun Tresina, and it's become quite active. That's the one in Iceland, just southeast of Reykjavik, and it had become quite busy by the time this Tresina opened yesterday. Amazingly, people are have been standing quite close to it, basically rushing towards it, not away from it. And there are pictures being posted of crowds of people standing close as rivers of lava are streaming out. It seems to be building up a steep-sided lava dome quite quickly. So who knows what might happen next? Apparently, this dome is called a hornito, 
looking something like a hornet's nest, and it can evolve into a small mountain on its own. And it's not the only one. There's also Pacaya volcano in Guatemala, which also sprang to life a few days ago. And yesterday, it shot an, an ash plume straight up like a huge billowing dark gray pillar rising to some 20,000 feet. It even threw out some impressive volcanic lightning, so both of these will be ones to watch. Another one called Fuego, also in Guatemala, is also quite active at this time, and and there are also several in Indonesia. Such eruptions and the building of new hornitos could easily be seen as representations of the personal authority of those volcanoes. They're going to do what they want to do and will certainly not be subject to anyone else's control. On that note, let's return for a moment to that number that I mentioned. 123 million 450,040. That was the number that appeared on the last day of the last Tresina, which was Sunday. That was the number of coronavirus cases recorded worldwide up to that point. I just happened to look at it at that time, and there it was. One, two, three, four, five, zero, zero, four, zero, as if it was trying to get my attention, and it certainly did. And then the following day, on the initiation of this Tresina, I saw that the numbers were telling me that 100 million people have officially recovered. So that was a kind of bad news, good news, mathematically speaking. So with this personal authority, self-determination energy in place, How does that translate into world events and into people's actions? Let's look first at something I mentioned in my Maya Count of Days blog, found by going to either whitepotpress.ca or mayacalendararts.com and clicking on Horoscope Blog. In the first part of that blog, I mentioned some of what was going on last summer, when this Tresina was in place at the time of the Black Lives Matter demonstrations. People were looking at statues in new ways, and many were being toppled, particularly if they represented racists or racism in some way. In Bristol, the statue of a 17th to 18th century merchant who had been involved in the gruesome Atlantic slave trade, was toppled and thrown in the harbor in early June. Then, during much of this Tresina, the Ben Tresina, which came in the following month, an artist named Mark Quinn worked with activist Jen Reed to create a resin and steel testament to the moment when Jen had climbed up onto that plinth where that awful statue had stood and spontaneously raised her fist 
in a black power salute to remind people to take back their own power after suffering so many appalling injustices. They got it finished and called their statue a surge of power, which I thought was so suited to this Tresina's energy. To boot, along with the help of several others, they secretly raised the statue onto that same plinth in the wee morning hours of 11 Akbal, towards the end of this Tresina, which happened to be the Maya birth energy of Abraham Lincoln. Perfect. Not that anyone knows that part unless you're listening to me now or unless you read the blog or somehow you're doing your own research through the lens of history and this calendar, which I think would be pretty rare. But this is the kind of thing that happens. This is the kind of thing that this calendar often reveals. Those of you who have been communing with me, so to speak, for a while now know what I'm talking about. But for the most part, the world at large is completely unaware of how these energies work. But that image of Jen, immortalized as a statue, standing on that plinth, is so in keeping with the nature of this Tresina's energies. As always, in the blog, I mention a number of people who have connections with this energy in various ways, either through things they've done or through their own birth. Again, keep in mind that anyone born within this period is influenced by both their own birth energies through the energy of the day and that of Ben itself from the larger perspective of the Tresina. I'm not going to go through all of that in this podcast, as they are noted in the blog, but there are two people I will be focusing on here who are so representative of this period, which I'll get to in a moment. First, I'll just point out a few other important points relating to this current energy sequence, starting with that idea of the patron energy. As you know, those who are familiar with this, every Tresina was thought of as having a patron, one or more, associated with it. For this one, it is the goddess of running water, associated with the cleansing waters of the earth, who is sometimes shown accompanied by the great mother goddess, who not only represents fertility, but also forgiveness and healing. So there's often a purification or healing aspect to these forces, which could be what helps to compel people to forge ahead with something they feel passionate about, like Jen stepping up on that pillar and raising her fist with regard to the toppling of that other offensive statue. At this particular time, that compulsion, that drive, may relate to millions of people stepping up and getting vaccinated, taking personal responsibility for their own well-being. 
Unfortunately, there will still be those who will take the more selfish route, the downside of these forces. Those whose brains have been infected to the point where the idea of being responsible for themselves or the greater good seems to have eluded them. It would be one thing if they just kept it to themselves, but sadly things don't work that way and doubtless even more will die because of it. Today's count in the U.S. is now well over 30 million cases, way beyond any other country. The death toll is somewhere between 543,000 and 556,000 in that country, depending on whose count you're looking at. And yet, some people party on. No personal responsibility whatsoever. Quite unfathomable. And then there's the issue of racism and the spreading of hate, including the recent attacks on Asians. The laying of blame on innocent people, all because some cannot find ways to deal in some more positive ways with their own anger or frustration about whatever's going on in the world. That whole idea of making others suffer just because they are in pain, it all has to do with personal choices and being responsible or not. But for anyone who may have had issues like this in the past, this is a great time to rethink your overall approach to life. It's a great time to cleanse all that out, as there are forces in the works that can help with that process. In addition to the energies of this Tristina, we also have the clickover in the hob, that's the 365-day solar cycle, to the Maya New Year coming into play at this time. As noted in the blog, this includes the five transitional days leading up to the Maya New Year, which is a good time to take a breather to get ready for the New Year. So this covers the period from Maya Day's 5 Caban on Friday the 26th through to 9 Imish on Tuesday, March 30th. A few years ago, I heard a couple who have worked and lived in Guatemala with the Maya speaking about how the Maya would put red string around their left wrists for protection during those five days. So you might want to do something to set up some kind of special protection for yourselves at that time, just to be sure. Then the Maya New Year arrives on March 31st, on Maya Day 10 Eek, which is a foundational wind, breath, spirit type of energy, highly aligned with source and with things pertaining to the air, to communication, and to things of a spiritual nature. For the Maya, this would have been seen as a sort of carrier energy for the year itself, for the next 365 days. 
note in the blog that this is the birthday for the Buddhist goddess of mercy. So we have coming in here another kind of spiritual element from another cultural tradition. Just before that, I had mentioned in the blog about the Holi Festival in India, which is also about getting rid of bad feelings and such from the past, driving away evil spirits and celebrating the triumph of the good. So it seems that we have a number of traditions reinforcing each other at this time in terms of the essence of what's going on energetically. So what I want to do at this time is to give you a couple of prime examples of how this energy can work in people's lives. And again, if you'd like to contact me to help you to review this kind of thing in terms of the energies that you might be working with personally in one way or another, perhaps with regard to yourself or to a family member or someone else, feel free to do so through the contact information on my site. But let's dive into this a bit through these two examples, both from the 19th century, but both have a lot to tell us. The first pertains to the influential 19th century American transcendental essayist, poet, philosopher, and champion of individualism, Ralph Waldo Emerson, who was born under the influence of one Ben, one Pope, just as the Maya New Year was beginning in 1803. One of his most notable essays is called Self-Reliance. What else? Perfect for this energy. I'm going to read a few bits and pieces from that essay because this is just classic. He said, Trust thyself. Every heart vibrates to that iron string. Accept the place the divine providence has found for you, the society of your contemporaries the connection of events. Great men have always done so and confided themselves childlike to the genius of their age, betraying their perception that the absolutely trustworthy was seated at their heart, working through their hands, predominating in all their being. What I must do is all that concerns me, not what the people think. This rule, equally arduous in actual and in intellectual life, may serve for the whole distinction between greatness and meanness. It is the harder because you will always find those who think they know what is your duty better than you know it, it is easy in the world to live after the world's opinion. It is easy in solitude to live after our own. But the great man is he who, in the midst of the crowd, 
keeps with perfect sweetness the independence of solitude. He has a lot to say in this essay about the issue, the problems of conformity. Unconformity, he says, it scatters your force. It loses your time and blurs the impression of your character. If you maintain a dead church, contribute to a dead Bible society, vote with a great party either for the government or against it, spread your table like base housekeepers. Under all these screens, I have difficulty to detect the precise man you are. And of course, so much force is withdrawn from your proper life. But do your work, and I shall know you. Do your work, and you shall reinforce yourself. A man must consider what a blind man's bluff is this game of conformity. Most men have bound their eyes with one or another's handkerchief and attached themselves to some one of those communities of opinion. This conformity makes them not false in a few particulars, authors of a few lies, but false in all particulars. Their every truth is not quite true. Their two is not the real two, therefore not the real four, so that every word they say chagrins us, and we know not where to begin to set them right. I think we can all relate to that these days. Emerson continues. Meantime, nature is not slow to equip us in the prison uniform of the party to which we adhere. We come to wear one cut of face and figure and acquire by degrees the gentlest asinine expression. There is a mortifying experience in particular which does not fail to wreck itself also in the general history. I mean the foolish face of praise, the forced smile which we put on in the company where we do not feel at ease in answer to conversation which does not interest us, the muscles not spontaneously moved but moved by a low usurping willfulness grow tight about the outline of the face with the most disagreeable sensation. And probably one of his most famous lines, a foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds, adored by little statesmen and philosophers and divines. With consistency, a great soul has simply nothing to do. He may as well concern himself with his shadow on the wall. Emerson continues. Every true man is a cause, a country, and an age. Requires infinite spaces and numbers and time, fully 
to accomplish his design. And posterity seemed to follow his steps as a train of clients. A man, Caesar, is born, and for ages after we have a Roman Empire. Christ is born, and millions of minds so grow and cleave to his genius that he is confounded with virtue and the possible of man. An institution is the lengthened shadow of one man, as the Reformation of Luther, Quakerism of Fox, Methodism of Wesley, Abolition of Clarkson. Scipio Milton called the height of Rome, and all history resolves itself very easily into the biography of a few stout and earnest persons. The world has been instructed by its kings, who have so magnetized the eyes of nations. And he was writing this long before the world wars, long before the rantings of demented dictators led millions into modern world wars. Although he was born just as the Napoleonic Wars were beginning, so he would have known about that. But this was long before the horrors of the First and Second World Wars, and long, long before the horrors of the last four years and the legacy of falsehoods, hate, and just plain insanity that they spawned. If he was to look at the world as a whole right now, I am sure he would just shake his head. But as he said back then, now we are a mob. He notes that in general, man does not stand in awe of man, nor is his genius admonished to stay at home, to put itself in communication with the internal ocean, but it goes abroad to beg a cup of water at the urns of other men. He said, to truly find ourselves, we must go alone. As he put it, I like the silent church before the service begins, better than any preaching. But your isolation must not be mechanical, but spiritual. That is, must be an elevation. Nevertheless, at times, the whole world seems to be in conspiracy to importune you with emphatic trifles. Friend, client, child, sickness, fear, want, charity, I'll knock at once at thy closet door and say, Come out unto us, but keep thy state. Come not into their confusion. When I read this, I wonder what Emerson would have thought about the last year or so when the coronavirus has forced people into isolation. And yet, how many have truly turned inward in search of their own truth or genius, as he might put it. Instead, most have been plugged into the all-consuming internet, often following others into deep, deep pits of absurdity, into oblivion, uh, 
Not all, of course, but too many. But I would think that there must be quite a lot of intense creative work going on as well, in private. Perhaps later on we might get to see some of the results. Back to Emerson. From an absolutely classic Ben Bourne perspective, Emerson advises to, quote, insist on yourself. Never imitate. Your own gift you can present every moment with the cumulative force of a whole life's cultivation. But of the adopted talent of another, you have only an extemporaneous half-possession. That which each can do best, none but his maker can teach him. No man yet knows what it is, nor can, till that person has exhibited it. Nothing can bring you peace but yourself. Nothing can bring you peace but the triumph of principles. All this might be summed up in Shakespeare's famous line from Hamlet, Above all, to thine own self be true. And it would seem that the great artist Vincent van Gogh may have been taking notes as this was the way he lived his life. As it happens, Vincent was born on 8 Ahau, the eighth day in this time frame. So in this case, you have the emergence energy of the number 8, which in Maya mythology was associated with the idea of basically re-emergence or resurrection of the sun in the form of the maize god, combined with the full sun of Ahau. So eight Ahau alone was a very, very sun-oriented energy, very aligned with enlightenment. And its placement in the Ben Tracina puts it under the influence of Ben as well. So here we have this strong enlightenment force working with the energy of self-determination, personal authority. Van Gogh, of course, is known the world over now. His images are not only found in glorious paintings in museums, but on t-shirts, coffee cups, masks, vast amounts of paraphernalia sold in gift stores everywhere. Even though he was hard-pressed to sell a painting in his own lifetime, during the late 19th century, his paintings are now on the list of the most expensive paintings ever sold. In 1987, someone paid $39.9 for one of his sunflower paintings. And in 1990, his portrait of Dr. Gachet sold for an astonishing $82.5 Currently, there is a major immersion kind of exhibition traveling around called Imagine Van Gogh where images of his works are blown up into huge panels that fill rooms, 
covering walls and floors completely so that you feel like you're literally walking into his artworks. I think that all of this would have literally blown his mind. How could he possibly reconcile himself to this when none of this was even remotely in line with his actual life, which ended in tragedy when he shot himself? His brother, Theo, reported his last words as being, quote, the sadness will last forever, unquote. It is really one of the greatest tragedies in the history of art. Let's just look a little closer. Hopefully, Vincent will grant permission for us to have a small peek at some of his letters. From the vincentvangaugh.org site, we find the notation that Vincent van Gogh's letters are one of the greatest joys of modern literature, not only for the inherent beauty of the prose and the sharpness of the observations, but also for their portrait of the artist as a man wholly and selflessly devoted to the work he had to set himself to. Van Gogh's letters are a journal, a meditative autobiography. And delving into this, we find that from 1872 until his death, 18 years later, Van Gogh wrote 903 letters to fellow artists, prominent dealers, and to his brother, 651 letters to his beloved brother, Theo. These letters detailing everything from his daily routines to what he was doing with his painting and reveal a great deal about what he was thinking during this period. They also highlight many facets of his personality, many facets of that eight how energy working through this Ben Tresino. In 2012, one of those letters sold for $280,000 for a letter. Let's have a look at some of what he was saying. This first bit is from a letter to Theo, which was written on June 24th in 1880. He says, Basically, in the first part of the letter, he seems to be apologizing to Theo for not writing for a while, and then he muses about the need to sometimes remain at a distance. In this letter, as in others, he often does some deep self-analysis, such a scene here when he writes that he is, quote, a man of passions, capable and liable to do foolish things for which I sometimes feel rather sorry. I do often find myself speaking or acting somewhat too quickly when it would be better to wait more patiently. I think that other people may also sometimes do similar foolish things. Now, that being so, what's to be done? Must one consider oneself a dangerous man, incapable of anything at all? I don't think so. But it's a matter of trying by every means to turn even these passions to good account. For example, 
To name one passion among others, I have a more or less irresistible passion for books, and I have a need continually to educate myself, to study, if you like, precisely as I need to eat my bread. When I was in different surroundings, in surroundings of paintings and works of art, you well know that I then took a violent passion for those surroundings that went as far as enthusiasm, and I don't repent it. And now, far from the country again, I often feel homesick for the country of paintings. Then a couple of lines later, he refers to, quote, something that's called soul. They claim that it never dies and that it lives forever and seeks forever and forever and forevermore. He then continues musing. But on the road that I'm on, I must continue. If I do nothing, if I don't study, if I don't keep on trying, then I'm lost. Then woe betide me. That's how I see this, to keep on, keep on. That's what's needed. Further on, he says, If now you can forgive a man for going more deeply into paintings, admit also that the love of books is as holy as that of Rembrandt, and I even think that the two complement each other. Regarding Shakespeare, he asks, Who is mysterious as he? His language and his way of doing things are surely the equal of any brush trembling with fever and emotion. But one has to learn to read as one has to learn to see and learn to live. With regard to how he was internalizing things, he asks, quote, Well then, what can I say? Does what goes on inside show on the outside? Someone has a great fire in his soul, and nobody ever comes to warm themselves at it. And passers-by see nothing but a little smoke at the top of the chimney, and then go on their way. So now, what are we to do? Keep this fire alive inside? Have salt in ourselves? Wait patiently? But with how much impatience? Await the hour, I say, when whoever wants to will come and sit down there, will stay there for all I know. It seems that For all his need to be on his own to do his work, he also wants to share. But then it seems he later comes to terms with that. A couple of years later, he writes, Even though I'm often in a mess, inside me there's still a calm, pure harmony and music. In the poorest little house, In the filthiest corner, 
I see paintings or drawings and my mind turns in that direction as if with an irresistible urge. That was written in 1882. Now, if we jump forward six years, we find his observations, a kind of glimpse into how he sees as an artist when he writes, quote, Yesterday, at sunset, I was on a stony heath where some very small twisted oaks grow. In the distance, a ruin on a hill and wheat in the valley. It was romantic in the extreme, like a Monticelli, the sun shining its bright yellow rays on the bushes and the ground, an absolute shower of gold. And all the lines were beautiful. The whole thing had a charming nobility. One wouldn't have been in the least surprised suddenly to see knights and ladies returning from hawking or to hear the voice of some old provincial troubadour. The land seemed violet, the distances blue. Here's a new subject, a corner of a garden with round bushes and a weeping tree, and in the background clumps of oleander, and the grass which has just been cut with long trails of hay drying in the sun, and a small piece of blue-green sky at the top. With such statements, we can see that it's almost as if he's become one with his images. But two years later, at age 37, he was gone, having succumbed to his own injuries. But even in death, he was embraced by that resurrection of enlightenment idea associated with his birth as his coffin was covered with masses of yellow flowers, including sunflowers and yellow dahlias, so in keeping with eight ahal. And what remains now is an astonishing legacy. In addition to the works themselves, the paintings and the letters and all the paraphernalia that has come from that, much has been written about him. Some have seen him as a kind of mystic or artist-priest. His paintings have been seen as acts of devotion, aligned with his search for the divinity which could only be found through direct contact with the natural world and not within the confines of structured religion. His ability to capture his profound awareness of that divinity through paint may help to explain why his paintings have not only endured, but have captured the attention of millions who, through contact with his images, give themselves permission to touch that divinity, even if only momentarily. 
I'll close with one of his immortal thoughts. Quote, For my part, I know nothing with any certainty, but the sight of the stars makes me dream. Let us all dream on. Until next time, be well. Love to you all.